Welcome to the Sam Pebbles podcast, our first episode on aesthetics. At this point, we actually have a guest, Gary K. Wolf, who's a uh, writer who started out back in 1981 with his book, Who Censored? Well, actually, you started before that, which is one thing I want to get into. But your first major well-known book was Who Censored Roger Rabbit in 1981, in which you essentially combined two languages and created a third one. As the philosopher Wittgenstein said, if you know a language, you know a form of life. And you were able to, you were able to combine the uh, language of cartoons with the language of human beings, and you essentially created a third form of life in which they both live together. And you went on uh, your latest, I guess it was in 2013, you wrote Who Whacked Roger Rabbit? Mm-hmm. And then in between there was pretty much everything except Broadway plays, as far as I can see. You did science fiction yeah. novels. No, I, I got a comment on one thing you said, because I, I didn't realize it, that this was going to be so literate. But my definition of creativity is to kind of take two things that have never been connected before and connect them to make a third thing that didn't exist. And I think that if you can take those two things and do that, that's creativity. And if you can invent one of those two things and come up with a third thing that's never been seen before, that's genius. And I'm not saying I'm a genius, but, you know, I took human beings and animate cartoon characters and created a world where cartoon characters and humans coexist. And that is my definition of creativity. As a true working-class hero, you don't give yourself enough credit, Pisa. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Well, uh, I mean, well you know... When I was doing it, and I'll tell you how it came to be, I've been writing since 1976. My wife encouraged me. I used to write poems for her. And she said, oh, these are pretty good. You should write a story. And so I wrote a story, and I published the story, and I published a whole bunch of books, science fiction books. And I was always trying to push the envelope. I was always trying to write stories and situations that nobody had ever written before, that nobody had ever thought of. And I wrote three pretty well-regarded science fiction novels. One of them, called Killer Bowl, which is my first science fiction novel, if I go to science fiction conferences, that is what I'm known for. I am not known as the guy who did Roger Rabbit. I'm known as the guy who did Killer Bowl. And I still get like 30 letters a week on Killer Bowl, which I wrote in 1976. But I wrote three science fiction novels, and they were pretty well-regarded. And I, How about the other one, uh, uh, A Generation Removed? Generation Removed, yeah, and then The Resurrectionist, and The Resurrectionist is being made into a movie right now. But for my fourth novel, I I wanted to combine my two childhood loves, one of which was comic books and cartoons, and the other, oddly enough, was noir mysteries. And it was noir mysteries because my mother was a really good mother. My father ran the pool hall in the little farm town where I grew up. And my mother worked in a school cafeteria. And my mother told me, you know, if you want to get out of this town, it was a little farm town, about 1,400 people. She said, if you want to get out of this town and you don't want to end up running your father's pool hall, one thing you can do to make that happen is to read. And so, you know, I read anything I get my hands on. And she never commented on what I read. She never said, oh, you can't read that. That's crap. That'll rot your mind. So what I read? Well, I read comic books. You know, like, you know, other kids, I read comic books. And my dad, who 
had to drop out of school in the third grade during the Depression to go to work. So he was not much of a big reader. But he used to read what they called at the time true crime magazines. And this would kind of be the printed equivalent now of reality crime shows. I mean, they showed graphic pictures of murderers and, and bank robbers and, you know, FBI agents were the heroes. And I used to read those because they were around the house and nobody said I couldn't. So I did. And I, I graduated eventually, thank God, to better writers, Dashiell Hammett kind of guys and, and noir fiction. So I grew up reading noir fiction, comic books, and watching cartoons. And I wanted to do something that would combine those two things into an owl. And I oh, how do you do that? You know, so I, w- I was watching Saturday morning cartoons one Saturday morning, you know, purely for research. I told my wife, purely for research, I'm watching Saturday morning cartoons. And I was fascinated not with the cartoons because they were very simplistic and the stories were simplistic, but with the commercials because I started to see cartoon characters like Tony the Tiger and the Trix Rabbit and Snap Crackle Pop and Captain Crunch. And these were cartoon characters talking to real kids, and nobody seemed to think that was odd. And I said, I thought to myself, yeah, what a great idea that is for a book. I mean, what if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? What kind of world would that be? And so I, I you know, I brought in a, a mystery, and I brought in a hard-boiled private detective to give it that noir feeling. And uh, I spent the next two years writing the book, just coming up with the conventions of cartoons living in a real world. You know, if a cartoon character goes into a human bar, what does he drink? And what happens to him when he drinks it? Well, I think you all saw that in the movie, you know, nothing good. And if a human goes into a tune bar, what does he drink? Well, he drinks tune tonic and kind of like moonshine and, you know, good things happen to him either. And I spent a year, two years of my life writing this book. And all the while... I'm a modest guy, but this was a brilliant idea. But to me, at the time, when I came up with it, it seemed so obvious. And I spent that two years of my life and the year after, when I went for the book to come out, worried that this was such an obvious idea that somebody was going to do this first, that it was nothing unusual that somebody else was going to say, oh, yeah, cartoons in a real world. But nobody did. And in retrospect, I now get credit for the entire reemergence of the animation industry. It all tracks back to me writing Who Censored Roger Rabbit. What about the reading? I mean, do you think kids are reading enough these days? Is it enough in education? That's a good question because for a while, when I would go on the lecture circuit, you know, I would talk about reading, and I, I'm, you know, I'm really big on reading. I do a lot of fundraisers for libraries, and I donate a lot of books and that kind of thing. And people would come up to me and they say, you know, all my kid wants to read his comic books. And, you know, and I said, well, it's all I ever read, and it didn't do me any harm. But lately, I am finding that all my kids don't read at all. All they want to do is play video games. They don't read at all. And I think that's a tragedy. I think that kids would gain so much by reading the classics, you know, Treasure Island. I still go back once a year and I read Huckleberry Finn because uh, every time I read it, I get something new out of it. I know young kids who read nothing, nothing at all. Not even comic books anymore. All they do is play video games. So I, I think it's likely to become something that we've lost in society and it's a tragedy. 
just like handwriting. You know, I I know kids nowadays who don't really know how to how to write well because they've grown up with iPhones and computers. And I've actually met kids who can't tell time with a clock with hands because they've never had to do that. It's all digital. So, you know, it's technology. I don't want to be a technophobe, but technology has its advantages, but it also has its disadvantages. Do you think it'll be replaced with a new form of creativity? I think so. I don't want to be the guy who says, oh, yeah, you can't play video games because it'll rot your brain. Because when I was reading comic books, my mother didn't say to me, hey, you don't want to read comic books, they'll rot your brain. It's going to develop a new set of skills for people. I think we're going to find young adults who have incredible motor skills, who are able to do things with their hands, who maybe have faster reflexes. It may well rewire your brain somehow. You know, I just don't want to be the guy who says everything old is good and everything new is bad. It's like when my father heard Elvis Presley, and he said, no, that's not singing. Bing Crosby, that's singing. I don't want to be the guy who says, oh, you know, rap, that's not music. Rock and roll, that's music. I don't want to be that guy. It's all good, and it's all relevant, and it will all change people significantly, whether it's for, for the better or the worse, uh, it's still to be determined. Maybe I'll throw in here the abstract question I was going to ask before I forget it. Basic issue of aesthetics. If you had done all your work on, let's say, a desert island, you were rescued and you left all your work behind, would that work still be art and beautiful or would it not be? Is art something that the mind discovers or creates? Well, I have never thought of myself as an artist, but, you know, let's assume that what I do is art of one form or another. As an artist, I don't do my art to please other people. And I don't do it, I don't even actually do it to make money, although I have. I do my art because it, it entertains and amuses me. I mean, I sit here for my two years writing my books, writing my movies, and I am as happy as I will ever be in my life. I'm amusing myself. And when I'm done with my book or my movie or, you know, whatever, my TV series, when I'm done with it, I really don't care if other people see it. I don't care if it sells. I don't care if it makes money. I'm happy with the time that I spent doing it because I personally had a good time and and it was fun for me. I'm kind of fortunate that the stuff I write seems to strike a responsive chord with the people who read it or see it or hear it or whatever. And it has been profitable for me, but it's not the intention. You know, if it's left on a desert island, is it art? It's like the tree falling in the forest, and nobody's there to hear it. If nobody sees it, it is still art in the mind of the person who created it. I've often wondered, you know, when I see things like the Venus de Milo, all right, which was pulled up, if I remember correctly, out of the Tiber River, and you know, masterpiece of art in the, you know, terrific thing. But my sense of it always was, well, maybe that was like this second-rate stuff that they threw in the river because nobody wanted to buy it. Maybe the really good stuff was someplace else, and we really haven't seen it. So 
why is this good and the stuff that we've never seen and maybe don't even know about might even be better? I don't know. It's all aesthetics, and a lot of it is the opinion of a critic. What's to say that some art critic who says, oh, yeah, this, this, is, a, this is a masterpiece, this is really good art, what's to say that he knows more than you know, somebody just wandering through the gallery who looks at the fire extinguisher and says, whoa, that's really cool. You know, it's so subjective that I'm not sure you can ever really quantify it.